Well, it's the time of year to think about EcoFarm. And if you don't know EcoFarm, and you're a listener to this podcast, you ought to know EcoFarm. There's an event that you can attend. And if it's past time for the event, just go to EcoFarm. And it's eco-farm.org. And they'll have the information on previous events, on information that they have available to you, on speakers. You really should be trying to be a part of this EcoFarm journey. Again, it's eco-farm.org. And enjoy today's podcast with a keynote speaker at EcoFarm. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Food sovereignty. Well, what does that mean, especially when it comes to Native Americans? Uh, food extends also to seed sovereignty as well. I have a lot of questions. Fortunately, I have somebody that has some of those answers, a professor in environmental sciences and an author, Elizabeth Hoover. Uh, welcome to Farm to Table Talk, Elizabeth. Thank you, Roger. If we're going to talk about food sovereignty, what is that exactly? I mean, it's not a word that average people use. I mean, it's bandied around uh, in the food community quite a bit. But if, if you walk into, you know, local supermarket or coffee shop and you start saying something about food sovereignty, they just look at you like, what are you talking about? I have no idea. So how do you explain food sovereignty? So I think the Organization La Via Campesina really popularized the term food sovereignty. And the, the quick and short definition is people's right to access culturally important foods and the control over how those foods are produced and procured and served um, to your community. And for indigenous communities, um, people started thinking about other layers that they wanted to, to add to that definition. So thinking about how do you build back up the relationships between people and each other and people in the land as part of that. Um, thinking about the sacred aspect that many people feel towards food, towards seeds, towards the bird, plant, animal, fish communities that people rely on for food. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, for some people, it's like, okay, this is a, a fancy academic term. So as part of a project I was working on, I went to visit 40 different food sovereignty projects around the country. And I asked people, you know, what does this mean here for you? And for some, they were like, you know, there's no translation into our community's language for food sovereignty, but here's the broader general idea of what we mean and it was around supporting the health of community members. So Native people have some of the highest rates of diabetes of any ethnic group in the U.S. And part of that is just around access to healthy food, culturally important foods. Um, so people in these communities are working to reestablish those connections that people can have with food. They're working to educate their fellow community members about why they want to be eating some of these traditional foods as opposed to very cheap and easy to access foods that a lot of Americans are eating. Um, there's a, a, a real desire to reconnect food and language and culture and make sure that some of these culturally important foods. So there are types of corn, for example, that people may need for 
ceremonial foods that you can't get at the store. And so unless your community is growing those, you won't have access to them. So for some people's definitions, it was about um, making sure that their community continues to have access to these culturally important foods. Um, and there's a, a real focus on sustainability. And so that's around environmentally friendly and sustainable ways of growing food. So making sure that you're not just extracting, extracting from the land and spraying a little liquid nitrogen to kind of make up for it, but instead that you're producing food in a way that's good for the land that produces healthy food for people, but also sustainability in the sense of making sure to get youth involved, because if it's just older folks working on these food projects, um, you know, they're not going to, to last in the same way. So there was a real desire to want to get youth excited about these foods and the process of producing these foods. So that's kind of the long-winded answer well, about what is food sovereignty. You know, I mean, one thing that reminds me, I have talked to other speakers, and we should say you're going to be a keynote speaker at EcoFarm. And I've talked to other speakers at EcoFarm in years past that were drawing attention to the fact that food available on reservations are uh, surprisingly, uh, food deserts that the supermarkets and stores that are on the reservation or near the reservations oftentimes don't have a good selection of the healthiest foods. Uh, oftentimes, it's uh, very, you know, the kind of things that you get at truck stops, which are just fine if you occasionally are stopping in a truck stop while you're driving across the country. But if, it's, if that's where you have to do all your shopping and it's, you know, uh, potato chips and candy bars and so forth, rather than a good variety of, of fruits and vegetables and lean meats and so forth. Um, and so when I, I think back on those conversations and then I think of your explanation of what you're talking about, indigenous communities. Uh, it seems like that should be helping draw attention in those communities to growing their own, of going back to producing food um, that they, you know, have have not for many many years, and in part because there's not good available of the of the kind of varieties that they should have. Let alone are they connecting with their their heritage. Um, but is that part of it? Is to to remedy the fact that there's there's less availability in many of these Native American reservations? Yeah, so there's less availability um, because often you know, grocery stores are not going to locate in these spaces. So you brought up the term food desert. Um, people have lived in the desert for thousands of years and gotten their food from the deserts, right? So, so deserts are naturally occurring landscapes. I prefer like food brownfields. So if you think of contaminated sites, that are essentially in spaces because um, you know companies have been allowed to pollute and not forced to clean up, and people have not put the uh, resources into cleaning up those spaces. That you know some of these communities, and in, you know these impact other communities of color and low-income communities. But these spaces where grocery stores don't necessarily want to go set up because they're not going to make a lot of money, um, and so the stores who are willing to set up are often these convenience stores. And so the, the reasons why indigenous communities don't have access to healthy food um, starts long before you know, grocery store politics, right? So starting on the East Coast, you know, the, the French that came through what's now upstate New York in the 1600s 
um, set fire to Haudenosaunee cornfields to weaken them politically. And then a century later, George Washington sends General Sullivan in to lay waste to their settlements. And Sullivan's army burned millions of bushels of corn and acres of cornfields and fruit trees. And there was an intentional destruction of food. And this happened for, you know, across the West, there was the intentional slaughter of millions and millions of buffalo as a way of starving out communities. Um, for Navajo people, there was, you know, the, the long walk. And for people who did not go on that death march up to the concentration camp at Bosque Redondo, Kit Carson and his men went and set fire to fields and set fire to um, uh, flocks of, of sheep. And so there's been a real systematic destruction of food systems. So then people are moving on to reservations, which are smaller land bases than existed before, um, which makes it harder to, to grow your own food and hunt for your own food. For tribes that were relocated from the Southeast out to Oklahoma, they often didn't have time to, to bring their seeds or to, you know, they're moving to a space where the landscape looks very differently. So that impacts communities' ability to feed themselves. And then children are forcibly taken off to boarding schools where they're taught to farm in different ways and they're deprived of food for you know much of their childhood. And so that impacts food sovereignty and people's ability to, to have access to these foods. Um, land bases have been, you know, over time shrunk more and more and more. You have the allotment era in the 19th century that broke up some of these reservations into individually held plots that then made it available to other settlers. So all of these things are happening even before. And so as a way of keeping people from starving, there was the ration system where you know the government drops off boxes of, of funky meat and other kinds of flour and sugar and lard. Um, and this is where foods like fry bread come from, is women trying to take these boxes of ingredients and figure out what can you make from it. And so then, you know, in the, the mid 20th century, you have the, the commodity food program that started as a way, you know, not just to keep Native people fed, but other um, folks who have trouble accessing food consistently. And those foods were often full of preservatives and fats and sugars. And so there's been a long history leading up to, you know, why is it that you have these high rates of diabetes and other metabolic disorders? And why is it that people are having a, a hard time producing food? And as, you know, the time has gone on, people have just stopped growing as much. And this has happened in a lot of, you know, it's only in the last few decades, I think, that young people have started to find farming hip and cool again. And so you know, in Native communities, people are going through the same process of like, okay, how do we encourage youth to want to grow and to want to grow these heirloom seeds specifically? And, and it, it's growing. I, I have hope yeah. that there are young people who well, are- You know, one thing, um, I mean, you were, you were going through those stories and um, I've read so much lately. I've been rereading the stories of, of what uh, Indians went through, the Native Americans, indigenous people of North America, um, all of North America, including Canada, late too. They just feel terrible. You know, it, uh, I've... Um, it's it's sinking in to me, certainly as to others too. But I've been reaching out and kind of reading the books, and and so so you you look at, at what brought us to where we are today, and how can you go back and and make improvements that you're talking about? But it makes me wonder about one thing, Elizabeth. Uh, you mentioned that like all of the of uh, the Indians from the southeastern United States that were relocated to Oklahoma. So in that case, you trace back to what was um, 
for for those communities, what was something in Georgia or Alabama as what they were doing there, or or what in the the next hundred and fifty years of uh, of being in Oklahoma, you know, because they were raising different food in different ways when they went to Oklahoma than they were in Alabama or Georgia. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just wondering is there is there a difference when you're trying to help them with the story of what their heritage is because they can't necessarily again be what the the Cherokees were growing in Georgia uh to be when they were displaced to, to Oklahoma. Yeah, and the the uh, the the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma. So there is a eastern band of Cherokee Indians still in North Carolina. Um so some tribal members stayed there and then there's a the Cherokee nation in Oklahoma and the the Oklahoma folks started a seed bank recently. And they, Pat Gwynn, um, I co-edited a book with Devin Mahesua called Indigenous Food Sovereignty in the United States. And Pat Gwynn has a chapter in that book talking about the process of developing that seed bank and deciding, you know, what were traditional seeds for Cherokee people. Um, And so some of that is, you know, required going back to um, their relatives on the East Coast and getting seeds from there and then getting other seeds that people had adapt, brought with them and adapted to Oklahoma. Um, so there have been some food traditions that have developed and it's really up to each community to decide what is your traditional food. Um, so in some ways people are like, well, we shouldn't have to just be entirely locked in the past. You know, Some people say, okay, pre-contact food, that's what traditional food is. And other people say, well, um, our relatives had developed new things, and we still see these as the important indigenous foods for our communities. And so it's really kind of a process that may look a little bit different in each space and for each person. So, you know, the, the book that I'm working on, I talked to a lot of native chefs who are working on getting their communities excited about, um, you know, eating traditional food, eating indigenous food, educating the rest of you know, the folks who live around here now about what indigenous culture and food is. And for some of them, it's like, okay, I'm only going to use ingredients that were available pre-contact to this space. And other people say, well, you know, I'm going to go ahead and and cook fry bread and serve it in my restaurant because um, that's what's meaningful and important to my family. And this is, you know, we've been cooking this for generations and but we're going to make it healthier. We're going to add. So, so Ben at Tokabe, if anybody gets down to Denver, it's a, a great restaurant. And he says, well, you know, we cook it in a healthier way. And then we add a lot of vegetables on top. So people can still have that comfort food, but we're going to put a lot of, um, you know, traditional vegetables on top of it. And so there are ways that people have been thinking through and working around, you know, what is going to count as culturally important food in their community. So in your research, do you, have you focused on kind of all of North America? Do you get into Canadian tribes as well? Not as much. Um, and there's a lot going on up there as well. There are a lot of great native chefs who've been working. Um, pretty much the only, I, I focus mostly just on the United States and then kind of a little bit into there. Some Mohawk communities that cross over the line there in Canada as well. Um, so, Ground zero, if you will, it, it seems like where everything starts would be, I would assume, like the reservation areas where they, where the nations still have reservations. Uh, and in the, say, in the United States, how many reservations are there roughly in, in the United States? A lot. States? I mean, there are 
570 something federally recognized tribes. And then there's a number of other tribes who might be state recognized or unrecognized. Um, so, you know, hundreds and hundreds of reservations. Would it be in half the states that they, that these, I'm just guessing. I mean, uh, of the, uh, how many states would have tribes in them, would you guess? Um, every state has native people in it. And some have more federally recognized tribes than others. California has one of the highest um, numbers of indigenous people. In I guess what I'm wondering is about is reservations, like, you, you know, that is a, a recognized, a agreed reservation. Yeah, there are a few states in the, the Midwest. Um, I don't think Illinois. Um, but well, anyway, I'm, I'm just yeah, trying I'm to. Not, trying I'm not to, sure where you're going with this. But. Yeah, well, it seems to me like that when you start with this this task of we're trying to envision this, is that you, you know, you almost like physically go there. I mean, you kind of, kind of, to be able to do the research and saying, well, okay, mm -hmm. from this area, and this is where, and there may, and there's some areas that are large reservations currently that have land that's controlled and and owned by by this by this tribe, uh, that you go there and you find what what they're able to produce today and what their heritage is what they've lost what they and it seems like what you're identifying in a way is what was the history uh and what has been lost as far as either the ability or in your case we're going to talk about seeds too uh the the tradition uh and in some of these chefs is probably recovering recipes uh, how to utilize these crops too. I mean, I really focus less on what has been lost than what has been maintained and what is being celebrated and what is being revitalized. And so, um, you know, Eve Tuck is a, a great indigenous author who writes about desire-based research rather than damage-based research. So, so much research about native communities has focused on, um, you know, rates of bad health and suicide and, um, incarceration and loss and alcoholism. And, you know, to the point where it's like, okay, there are some bad statistics, but what is important is this desire-based research. What are communities doing to lift themselves up, to maintain culture, to improve health? And so that's really kind of where I focus is where these revitalization efforts are happening. So it's less a catalog of the loss and more a celebration of what's been maintained and is being revitalized and is getting people excited about right now. So I would imagine that one effect of, of your work and your, when you are writing books and you're going out and talking to people and you've got other students, other people are connecting with you, is that they get an idea of saying, well, this is interesting. This is happening in upper state New York. Maybe it's something that we can do uh, here in this area of Tennessee. Or so I, uh, I would, I would think that um, you would be inspiring. I would, I would suspect. Other That's been a goal areas. of this project. Yeah, is like how do you. Um, let other people know in other spaces. So that's why I started the blog, the Garden Warriors Good Seeds blog, was to showcase all of these different community-based projects so that people in other communities could say, you know, we need to start a youth program like that here. We need to get a garden going like that here. Or, you know, we've had the idea to get this garden going. Um, who can we reach out to? And then to be able to see other projects and be like, okay, we want to, to model something like that. So that has been the hope, yeah. 
Now, when you're identifying these, uh, I would assume that in some cases, the traditions have kept going, but they have to have had the products have had to be produced. So that's where part of this, I suppose, is maintaining the availability of seed stock. So we're talking about food sovereignty, but there's actually seed sovereignty too, because if people have not only got out of the habit, but they've stopped using those seeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you how do you do that? I mean, once you're you're finding, okay, this is what foods we want, but we're really really short of that variety. How do you identify that that shortages, and and how do you try to stimulate the production so that seeds are available to people that want to to kind of bring back those mm-hmm. crops? Yeah, so that's been an ongoing process. The Indigenous Seed Keepers Network is an organization through the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance that has been trying to help organize communities around this issue. So they're working on developing a seed sovereignty assessment toolkit um, and you know, been giving workshops for some time now on how do you save seed? So the art of saving seed is a very particular skill. You can be an amazing gardener and some people... Um, are great at you know ordering their seeds in the catalog, planting them, and have green thumbs and make beautiful gardens. But if you're going to be saving those seeds year after year after year, um, you have to plant them in a particular way. You have to know you know so that things aren't crossing by accident. You have to know when to harvest the seed, and that may be different than if you're um, you know eating foods. You may have to let things grow longer than you would have in order to be able to save the seed part. Um, and so part of the effort has been around. there's been this revitalization and this excitement around how do you track down seeds that, you know, people have known used to be in the community and maybe haven't seen in a while. And in some places that's been, um, for example, the the Pawnee seed folks out of Oklahoma have been, you know, Deb Echohawk headed up that project. And for her, I did a, a chat with her and she was describing how she, you know, just went to all these folks in her community to see who still had seeds squirreled away. You know, it's in, in cupboards in baby food jars in, you know, sock drawers that people have kind of forgotten about. And then in, for other seeds, um, you know, in one case, it was getting a bundle repatriated from a, a museum that had seeds in it and getting those seeds to sprout and getting those back in that way. Um, for Ponca folks who are also in Oklahoma now, it was reading about, okay, in the 19th century, people had all of these kinds of corn before they were relocated to Oklahoma. Where have those seeds gone? And going out on seed forums and contacting seed keepers in other communities and tracking down seed that way. And then in some cases, so you know, people went out and collected seeds and gave them to museums as a symbol of what they thought at the time were kind of disappearing tribes like oh let's hurry up and collect you know the the artifacts of of the kind of farming people are doing and then they're filed away in museums and so now people have been reaching out to those museums saying hey we'd love to access those seeds again so i'm working with the indigenous seedkeepers network on um, gradually developing some kind of protocols for how can museums go through this kind of work. So the Field Museum in Chicago, um, I've been working with them on an exhibit and a project that brought some of those seeds back home to the Meskwaki community. Here at Berkeley, we have the Hearst Museum, and we've been going through and kind of cataloging what are all the seeds in the collections and how do we reunite some of those seeds with their host communities Um, The Science Museum up in in Minneapolis was one of the first to take seeds from their collections, 
that were like, you know, 80 years old, grow some of them out, got some to sprout, and then gave them back to the communities from which they were originally collected. So there's these efforts of you know, developing these networks and trading seeds um, among different tribal communities, but then also going back to some of these seed banks, some of these museums, and tracking down varieties that people just haven't grown in a while. So now these seeds, are they primarily being used for gardens on uh, reservations, or are there are they achieving commercial scale too, so that they can, uh, you know, mill and sell the flour or whatever that they're producing to uh, broader audiences? So the Pawnee Seed Project um, sells some of their cornmeal from the the corn that they raise. People don't tend to sell the seeds themselves um, because that. Uh, people don't feel comfortable with having that kind of relationship. And that's an ongoing discussion and debate um, because you, know, you have to figure out how do you support the growers and the farmers who still have to pay their electric bill. Um, but at the same time, making that seed available without having that kind of capitalist interaction. Um, so for the most part, these kind of heirloom seeds are being traded amongst community members and used you know, four people supper um, right there. One of the kind of bigger operations is the Jenhinkwa farm at the Wisconsin Oneida that grows acres and acres of Iroquois white corn, which is used for corn soup, for corn mush, for cornbread. And they have a, a wonderful cannery there that takes the corn, you know, from the field. So they harvest these acres and acres of corn. And then the cannery will then process it into soup corn and corn flour and corn meal. And community members are then able to to buy it and and eat it more easily. Does the cannery then put a story on the on the labels about where it came from and the story mm -hmm. of? Uh, oh, that's perfect, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, and I, then the, there's the Iroquois White Corn Project out of Ganondigan in in upstate New York is another one, and people can just go online and order, um, you know, some of that soup corn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I because I've wondered how much of that ends up going into scale to be able to do something just like that, because that's going to get more people into it. And the other thing I think of then is that if you, if you've got the seeds and you grow the, the, the product, the produce largely, uh, and then you need to process it. So somebody has to cook it. And so you, you mentioned earlier uh, chefs. Mm -hmm. So what about keeping track of the, of, of the recipes uh, and, and, and what various uh, tribes and communities were were able to use some of those those original products, and um, how did how do you make that transition? How do chefs get a hold of the ideas that that they want to offer something that is authentic? So there are a number of chefs who've been putting out cookbooks, and there's some coming. Um, many chefs take the foods that they grew up with. Um, and then kind of make them their own. So Freddie Bitsui just came out with a cookbook. It's called The New Native American Cookbook, I think, something like that. Um, and he talks about how he took recipes from his childhood and puts his own spin on it. Um, the Eye Collective is a, a collective of chefs that um, has put out a virtual cookbook, and they've kind of tapped into different chefs and their network, and they talk about some of the, the history and politics of food. Um, Sean Sherman has this very well-known the Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen. And again, he's um, taking you know, recipes from around the, the Great Lakes and Plains area. And then he and I are about to embark on a new 
cookbook project um, that's going to feature 13 different regions from around the, the Western Hemisphere. And as part of that process, we're talking to food producers and chefs and cooks from these different regions. And, um, you know, he's being inspired by those to, to write these recipes. So, you know, pe- they're essentially people kind of take the recipes that they grew up with, that they've learned from people in their communities or from other native chefs, and then adding their kind of own original spin onto it. Well, let's t- let's just take a minute or two and talk about your your own journey here. Because uh, did you grow up uh, in a in a tribal community? What's your heritage? So I grew up. Um, I'm of Mohawk and Mi'kmaq descent, but I grew up in the middle of nowhere, upstate New York, on a little farm. Um, so we grew a lot of vegetables and chickens and ducks and turkeys. Um, but we ordered our seeds, you know, from catalogs or from local agway. And it wasn't until I was living in Akwazesne, which is a Mohawk community on the New York-Canadian border, um, that I really got interested in heirloom seeds and seeds that you save year after year that are kind of very particular to that place um, and and learned about kind of the, the art that is saving seeds versus just planting brand new seeds every year. And that was, that was inspiring. And so I've met a lot of really um, wonderful seed keepers, people like Rowan White, who is an amazing seed keeper, who's originally from Okwazesne and now lives out here in California and has really made it her life's work to educate people about um, these kinds of seeds and to really, you know, help resource her community to be able to, um, you know, find all of these seeds, track them down and make them readily available for people to have in their gardens. Well, you know, there has to be a lot of people that have some similar, some similar experiences to in that they grew up on a small farm or uh, in, in, in a tribe, uh, in a reservation someplace, and they've gone on as you have gone on and gotten college degrees and now find yourself in Berkeley. I'm, I'm wondering if you feel that you reach some of those other folks who have um, have ancestry that they're proud of and they're trying to reach back and they're trying to figure out how they can reconnect, uh, that perhaps they can read your book for sure, but they might have gone on to have a job in Seattle or Chicago or somewhere else. And um, I'm wondering if it also connects with them. They think, well, maybe I should try gardening and maybe I can try uh, raising some of the things that, that, that my ancestors used to raise. I think it is a, a way of reconnecting to home a little bit. I'm a long way from home out here in California. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the example I think of, I work with a, a graduate student named Sierra, who's Chickasaw, but who was living in Turkey for a few years. And she maintained an indigenous garden there in Turkey with the, you know, seeds from her homeland. So I think that is a way that um, people sometimes are able to to stay connected to their own foods. Um, you know, I think people from all kinds of cultures. So when I lived in Providence, the African Alliance had gardens where they worked with um, recent African women refugees who were living in Providence and wanting to grow out the foods that were familiar to them that they couldn't get in the grocery store. Um, so I think that's been a way of people from all different cultures, you know, think of all the, the people who've emigrated here to America and maintained their kitchen gardens as a way of staying connected to home in that way and, and to the foods that they're familiar with their families. So I think gardens are a nice way of doing that. Well, let, let me just ask one other angle on this too. Where does meat figure into this? I mean, there was um, 
you know, not so many uh, vegans among uh, many of these communities. I mean, they were there's wild game, and then some had cattle, and and certainly in certain areas of the Southwest, a lot of sheep and goats that were raised. So, is it part of what you are identifying? Is there a spot for for livestock that that might have been used? Or yeah, I mean, I work more specifically with kind of gardeners and farmers, but there's been a big effort to revitalize buffalo herds on the plain as a way of um, reconnecting people with that healthy source of, of protein, especially. Um, there's been a lot of efforts around um, fish, so trying to get dams removed here in California, the Pacific Northwest, to bring fish back to the area as a traditional food. Um, there's so many deer in Berkeley. I wish we could just hunt some of those. <laughs> I know, I know. Too, but. On the deer every, everywhere. And um, well, it's it's fascinating. And and I think a couple of things. Um, well, first of all, I think we should identify your books. So if somebody would like to go deeper than just the podcast, um, where do they find what you're writing? So the the first book I wrote, which is mostly about a, a community's response to environmental contamination, but also includes a chapter on farming and gardening and seed saving, is called The River is in Us, Fighting Toxics in a Mohawk Community. Um, and then I co-edited a book with Devin Mahesua in 2019 called Indigenous Food Sovereignty in the United States that has a lot of great chapters from Farmers and seed keepers and fisher people and lawyers and everybody, everybody in between, chefs. Um, so a lot of people involved in the, the food movement. Um, and then I have a number of, of articles. If people go to my academia.edu site, I've put them up there so you can access them for free. And you're going to Eco Farm. So going to Eco Farm, that's right. And there's an opportunity for people to come and, and hear you speak there. I think it's really, I really admire what you're doing. And I find it very, very interesting. And one more thing about people that are interested that a um, couple different ways to engage. One, more and more, I'm seeing people wanting to respect the land that they're on as uh, who was there first. And so, you know, oftentimes I see, uh, emails. I know people that are kind of right on the cusp of wanting to do that, but they don't quite know how to know for sure. Uh, you know, how if if I don't know if you can give any advice on that. You haven't written a book on this, but I know that there are people that would like to say, I'd like to identify who was here first, at least a, a sense of reference and say, well, I'm Roger and I'm living where, you know, this tribe or several tribe. And in my case, there's like three or four. So I haven't decided which one I wanted to try to try to give credit but how do how do you suggest to people that that um that would like to um to do that research and to know where it is they're living now and where they should uh kind of acknowledge as they're a part of the history of the place yeah so there's a website called native-land.ca that has a, a map um which is kind of a good place to start um you know, it's. I think it's also about you know, talking to your neighbors, talking to your local universities, who sometimes have had the time to to put time into a land acknowledgement. And I think you know, it's good to recognize whose land that you're on. But I think too often, you know, people end there and they're like, "Oh, look at me! I've uh, I've acknowledged whose land right, I'm sure. on." Sure. Um, 
And, you know, people will put it into their, their taglines and their email. They'll put it into, you know, their Zoom conversations. Everybody tell us whose land you're dialing in from. Um, but I think if it stops there, it's kind of a hollow gesture. Um, and so I think beyond that, you know, beyond just recognizing whose land are you on, what can you do to advocate for those communities whose displacement you're benefiting from by being on their space? Um, how can you help be an ally when these communities are are fighting to get land back or protect sacred sites from being bulldozed and made into parking lots or gravel pits? Um, how can you support when they're working to get their ancestors back from museums and universities? How can you um, contribute when they're having fundraisers trying to, um, you know, continue with with programming or just existing. We're doing a, a pre-conference workshop for EcoFarm about, you know, getting farmers to think about whose land they're on and how can they collaborate um, with those people who are still here. Um, you know, how do you help support? If you're in the Berkeley area, Vincent and Lewis, who are two great Ohlone chefs, are about to reopen Cafe Ohlone. So, you know, come eat their great food and they're excellent at at educating folks as well. Well, and the other thing you referred to at the very beginning of our podcast is that young people seem to be ready to go back. And, you know, I think one thing I've noticed across the country, there's people that have gone, have left wherever they were from uh, and gotten an education and gone to work in Silicon Valley or someplace and are reconsidering and thinking that they're, they want to move back you know, move out to the country and get get started and know more about how food is to be to be produced, and um, and and I think I heard you say that that's happening with with young people too that that have um, Native American heritage. Yeah, absolutely. People are are interested in in learning more how to produce food, how to produce food sustainably, um, how to eat well, how to make sure that. The types of culturally important foods that their communities need are being produced. Well, and then uh, I, I look for the other spots that I'm, you can read more uh, about their food and how it's produced. In that, um, you're seeing consumer packaged goods companies too that are putting stories. Some people suspect it's greenwashing sometimes, and sometimes maybe it is. But I also think that it's responding to a consumer interest to know more about their food and how it was produced. And certainly the, the kind of history that you're talking about, there's a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. And 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 I think, too, in commodity agriculture, you tend to just end up going towards one or two varieties. You don't have the varieties like you have with seeds and so forth. Uh, but seeing these companies that are able to get get stories out there right now. Um, I hope more of them will get to you, Elizabeth, and say, help us tell our story, help us connect with people that that if they're trying to have something that's origin of some of the products that were grown then and some of those traditions or drawn attention to the restaurants, like you mentioned a couple, that are going to be featuring the, the foods that we're highlighting today. Yeah, I mean, if you're in the Oakland area, uh, Crystal Wapapa just opened Wapapa's Kitchen, which is an amazing, you know, she's Kickapoo and grew up in Oakland. So she's connected both to Oakland and Oklahoma. And she features a lot of foods that she's sourced from different native producers in her, her meals and her food is really great. And so a lot of the, you know, I mentioned Tokabe, Ben Jacobs, 
um, in Denver, you know, a lot of the sous chef and the, um, he opened the, the restaurant up in Minneapolis and has the indigenous food lab, Sean Sherman and his crew there. Um, they really make a point of utilizing foods produced by native farmers, native wild ricers, native syrup producers. Um, so providing that market and also educating people about where these foods are from. I wish I was better prepared because I've talked to somebody that I've had on the podcast before that was from St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Uh, guy that did a really excellent job and 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 also in the southeast I've talked talk to some. So it it is happening. And hopefully with that leadership, you'll see these key spots like the restaurant you just mentioned, there will be more of them. And that hopefully leads to more awareness and more consumption. And that will lead to maybe products available to in in stores let alone more people producing their own and going back to the taking advantage of the heritage of the seeds that you're protecting the sovereignty of. So I really appreciate the conversation um, and thank you for what you're doing. And thanks for sharing a book with us. And we look forward to Elizabeth Hoover. Thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thanks, Roger. been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 